it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. You are listening to Gangland Wire, hosted by former Kansas City Police Intelligence Unit Detective Gary Jenkins. Well, welcome all you wiretappers out there here on a Zoom call. As you know, I'm doing all my shows on a Zoom call with Sean Patrick Griffin now. Sean Patrick Griffin is a really interesting guy. First of all, he's a former copper, just like me. He was on the uh, Philadelphia Police Department, and I'm not sure exactly how long. We're going to ask him in just a minute. And then he went on to get some advanced degrees, just like I did, and has written a little bit. And I've not really written any uh, academic papers or articles like he has. Mine's more uh, slocky kind of writing, you know. But we've got similar tracks in our careers, in our lives. So, Sean, it's really good to have you on here. Thanks for having me, Gary. John, I guess, first of all, as we talked a little bit ago before we came, started recording, tell the listeners out there, we call each other wiretappers here on, in this because I've made extensive use of, of wiretaps and video audio from wiretaps that I got from an investigation we did in Kansas City. So tell the wiretappers a little bit about your career. What'd you do on the PD? And then how'd you happen to go into academia? Sure. Well, I went on the Philadelphia Police Department almost by mistake. It was not a career plan. It's a very long story. I originally planned on being an FBI agent. And yeah. if you come out of college with a four-year degree, as I did in criminal justice, that wasn't enough. You either had to be an accountant or some special person or have an accelerated degree in addition to field experience. So I thought, well, I can go on the Philadelphia Police Department, pay off student loans, which was a big deal to me, and get field experience to become an FBI agent. For those who don't know, my father was a police officer. My brother is still a Philadelphia homicide detective. Between the three of us, we have more than 60 years of experience in the Philadelphia Police Department. And when I was on the job, I started going for my master's degree. And when my mentors at Penn State heard what I was doing, they thought I was crazy. They wanted me to go into academia. Well, I thought they were crazy because I'm a working class kid from Philly. I don't know anything about PhDs and academic journals and all that. Even though I loved academia, I was lucky. I had great professors when I was a student. And anyway, so I had this fateful decision. I applied for the FBI. I was going through the process and I'll, I'll never forget where I was when I made the call. I called my FBI recruiter. I told her that I was going to choose academia. And so I went on and got my PhD. A lot of people ask me if my policing has to do with my research. And the truth is it really doesn't. I was just a regular street cop. Unlike you, I didn't wiretap anybody. I was just a street <laughs> cop. Now, my brother probably could talk to you about that. My, my father and I are both just regular cops. And when I went into academia, my main focus was organized crime. I was lucky. Probably the 
definitely a top three organized crime expert at the time was a guy named Alan Block. He has since passed away, but I went to study under Alan because he was just a trailblazer back in the 60s and 70s, back when organized crime was just becoming a topic to be studied. And for those, for your audience who doesn't know, it's really not good. You're not supposed to get all your degrees from the same institution. And I just thought it was backwards. Well, why would I go to another school when the guy is just so happens to be at Penn State? So I went and got my PhD from Penn State. It was an amazing experience. And when he and I co-authored pieces, a lot of people, even back then, when they say co-authored, somebody would do a chapter or a chapter here and you'd meet together. We literally sat next to each other for years writing together. And seeing how one of the best people in history wrote about organized crime and how he did his research and his connections and his networks, it was just unbelievable. It was just unbelievable. And his threshold for what you would put into print, Alan would always say, and I now say the same thing, he would always say that a lot of things happen, yeah, but that's a different matter than me writing it in a book that people are going to rely on 30 or 50 years from now as history. I do the same thing. And so if you and I got together for beers, trust me. I could go on for hours and hours and hours about things I've heard and things I believe, but that's not going to appear in print. I got my PhD at Penn State, and then uh, I went into academia, and it's been great ever since. And I'm lucky. A lot of my colleagues write about things that don't lend themselves to mainstream readership. Like, for instance, a lot of my policing research, it can only go into an academic journal. The public doesn't even know it exists. You know, it's academics talking to other academics. Maybe some police departments are aware, but probably not. Because my organized crime stuff can be mainstream and people love organized crime, I've written books that try and straddle the things. I actually wrote a foreword in one of my books where I said, the challenge, if you're in my line of work, is if you study organized crime, you typically get one of two types of books. Their academic books were incredibly sourced, which you and I can rely on as history, but man, it's dense, boring reading. Or you get the other genre, which is supposedly true crime books, but there's no sources, no citations. And you and I, we maybe it's real, but you don't really know. And so my goal is always to bridge that gap so that you and I can 30 years from now go, well, if Griffin wrote it, that's what happened. And if you want to do a follow-up research, look at footnotes 49 and 50. They'll take you to the data or to the interview subjects or whatever. And so that's pretty much what I have. But my, my claim to fame has been getting stuff. I routinely have people in the FBI or law enforcement scene saying, how did you get that? Because I use FOIA, but I don't really rely on it. I rely on unredacted documents mostly. Yeah, that was FOIA. What he said was FOIA or Freedom of Information Act, folks. And I've done that. And they're so redacted that you can fill in if you are really familiar with the topic and the people, but they're so redacted. So, it, you know, gathering real solid information is hard. It's easy to gather myths and stories because there's a thousand stories out mm-hmm. there and several different versions of each well-known story, of course. But and for your listeners who use FOIA, be prepared to use a lot of toner cartridge because there's just a lot of black redactions. <laughs> yes, that's true. I've had whole pages of black. Of course, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it helps. It helps, FOIA does. And you can get some pretty good little tips yeah. out of that. But mm-hmm. you got to be able to fill in some of the blanks, too. So it's uh, gather that information. It's a real skill in itself, just doing the research and find the people now. You sound like you've been able to talk to some people, as well as finding some primary source documents. Yeah. Now, how would you rate like newspaper articles as primary source documents? Well, in my field, they're not considered primary source documents. Okay. But I will say this. If you're doing, we're probably going to talk about Philadelphia's Black Mafia. If you're doing that sort of research, archival research about things in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 
I would argue those are different than today. At those journalists, they were researchers. They were really doing no-joke journalism back then. And so for the most part, you can't rely on them, but they're great windows into where to look. And I have a great deal of uh, respect for people who did that back then. Now, it's just a, it's a different world. Some newspapers don't even have journalists, don't have investigative journalists that actually do right. their own research. You've probably heard the expression that many newspapers now are literally just press releases from the local DA's office or whatever. They just print it to them and, and that's it. Yeah. And I'm not criticizing them if that's their business model. It is what it is. But you and I as researchers, that's a problem. And um, so the other thing, too, is back then very common, in my case in Philly, the organized crime investigators, they weren't necessarily friendly with law enforcement. There was sort of a tension, but each party understood the value of the other. And so, yes, the reporters in the most part were always muckrakers and looking to fight the system, but there were plenty of times where facts are facts. And so I don't use them as primary sources, but you'd be a fool not to at least consider them and use them as windows into where you're going to go. Oh, yeah. I used to always keep a journalist, a, a reporter or two, kind of uh, as my pal, and I'd yeah. slip them little things. And, and you know, they tell me stuff, too, and they always had that. And, I, and there in Philadelphia, you've got a couple of great guys, uh, Dave Stratweiser and uh, yes. George Anastasia. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. those guys are dynamite. Yes. Though. And that George Anastasia, he knows that stuff, yeah. and, and they well, know that's people. The, well, by the way, that's a great example, right? If you talk to Stratweiser or Anastasia, they know people on both sides of every story. Right. They're, they're no joke journalists. They've been through, yeah. they've been doing this for decades. And unfortunately, yeah. that's a dying breed. Yeah, it is. We've got one young kid here in Kansas City that I've still maintained contact with that, that kind of tries, but he doesn't have any help. And they keep him so busy doing other stories and other things that it just, it's difficult for him. The thing is, it's hard for people to understand. If you talk to somebody like you or me or Shotwise or Anastasia, especially if you're physically in the place, you can go to talk to all these people. And one of the things that I think the public doesn't understand, this is especially true for law enforcement people. I can't tell you how many friends of mine in law enforcement keep their own files, either because a case was noteworthy or because they think it didn't turn out correctly and they think a case got dropped or they weren't getting enough funding. And then you or I come along and say, hey, I'm researching whatever. Oh, my goodness. And meanwhile, they've got boxes in their basement. You know, here, take them. If people aren't willing to make the phone calls and do the legwork and, and travel, they're not aware of all the things that are out there. Yeah, that is true. So let's talk about the Black Mafia there in Philadelphia. You said some interesting things about the development of mafia in an article that I read when I first found out about you and that I found interesting. And that's. How do these ethnic minorities get into organized crime? Because if you think back, there's, you know, the Italians, of course, kind of were the first ones. They brought the structure with them from Sicily. By the 30s, prohibition came along and really the English and the Irish already had all the good jobs and they were not letting them in the good jobs, even being policemen or firemen for the most part, just a few. So they went into organized crime because you had all these young guys who were bright and native intelligence out the ass, they'd been led into some kind of business. They would have done well, but they were squeezed out of, couldn't get loans. Nobody was going to do business with them because they were Italian. They looked a little different. They maybe didn't speak English perfectly and with an accent. And so they went into organized crime to make a ton of money. And then other ethnic minorities have done the same thing. The young Jewish guys, uh, Meyer Lansky and people like that, had they been able to go right into some kind of legitimate business 
and been brought in by somebody who was already here in the States, he wouldn't end up being the banker for the mob. He wouldn't end up being Mr. Casino, Mr. Money Man for the mob. He would have been the owner of a real bank or the CEO of a big corporation. So also Greeks the same way and now and blacks. And so African-American people have notoriously been kept squeezed out from those kinds of things. I mean, we've got all kinds of reports, redlining, you can't get loans. There's just a lot of ways that African-Americans have been squeezed out. And to me, drugs came along and boy, they, those young guys that are being squeezed out, they saw a way to make money and make big money to do any kind of crime on an organized basis like that, you got to form an organization. And it's always usually ends up with the title of mafia. You know, that's kind of a general term, even though it's really Sicilian in nature. But what's the Russians, the Russian mob, the Russian mafia. So you got the black mafia. So how did that develop there in uh, Philadelphia? Well, the thing is, most major cities had uh, black organized crime as early as the late 1800s. Because they didn't have access to banking, it meant that by definition, they had to find an alternative series source of funds. And so local numbers run is especially, which back then was wasn't called numbers, called policy. The right. policy people were the banks for the local neighborhoods. And that was true all throughout the country for decades. Yeah, we had one in Kansas City, a guy named Peyton. He was the banker and he had the policy and he had several bars and he was active in politics right. and he uh, joined with the Irish organization right. to help get the vote out. And right. Actually, he converted all the African-Americans from Republican because they all were Republican before because Lincoln won the war. And now he turned them all into Democrats to go with the machine. So I bet you got the same thing in, well, in Philly. Cool. That, look, it was going on throughout the country. I mean, W.E.B. Du Bois wrote his famous study in 1899, the Philadelphia Negro. Now, it's about Philly, obviously, but it's not. It's a microcosm of what was going on throughout the entire country. There's an entire section of what he called Negro vice. And that's what he talks about. The influence of those people in that neighborhood or in those neighborhoods. And they had incredible political power for good reason. It was a patronage service. No different than the Irish were doing with policing and firefighting and trash hauling jobs. This is really not complicated, but it's complicated because the media and academics never talked about it. That's the only reason it's so noteworthy. But getting back to your question, Philly's Black Mafia... It, we don't know when it started. The conventional wisdom, the common theme was they started in the mid-60s. I always put a footnote on that only because when I started my research in the 90s about this, I was lucky. I had the benefit of 20 years of hindsight. So I now knew roughly what the group was supposed to look like. I knew who the main people were. So I could go back and look at court records, law and intelligence files, and newspaper articles back to the 50s. And what you wound up seeing were clusters of these guys being arrested together. So they knew each other for years, whether that was an organized crime racket, it doesn't matter. But yeah, by the time you get to the mid-60s, they're actually calling themselves the Black Mafia, which was smart, by the way. If you're going to be, they were mainly an extortion group. They extorted drug dealers and all people who did illicit business, bar, especially bar owners who allowed gambling in their joint or prostitution upstairs. People who couldn't go to law enforcement with their grievance about yeah. being extorted, right? It's good, good organized crime. Well, anyway, the only way you can do that is if you have a name for yourself. And so they called themselves the Black Mafia. And what's interesting is even though law enforcement at the time was only looking at Italians, I had the benefit of going back and looking at homicide records, intelligence files. And you see fleeting references from confidential informants or from murder files where they're saying, hey, you realize this is a Black Mafia murder. Or, hey, just, you know, the Black Mafia has been shaking me down and they're complaining to law enforcement. But there's no follow up. See, that's the difference. It's not as though there weren't little flickers 
because they were so myopically focused on Italians, law enforcement didn't do anything. Yeah, they prosecute a murder. Obviously, they're going to prosecute a murder. They're going to prosecute a robbery. But they're not actually collecting intelligence and treating it like an organization. Same here in Kansas City. I remember those days because I worked all black district and I'd come up with things and I'd say, well, this guy, he seems to have some control over these other people. And I have a guy tell me how he can get this and get that for you. And he's got some a little crew of grocery store robbers that go out and he furnishes them cars. And then they come back and meet him. So I get hold of our intelligence people at the time. And they looked at me like I had two heads. And I could tell they didn't really care. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, that's not where the funding was either. Back then, right. late 60s, early 70s, when all that federal money is getting pushed into organized crime, they're only talking about Italians. So, and they were probably, you, know, I, you probably know this, but, you know, in New York, it was originally called the Italian squad. I mean, they weren't even joking about who they were going after. And Philly, it was the same thing. It was called Intercept, which was short for the internal, oh, I used to know this. It was the internal security against the emerging Italian threat. I mean, ridiculous stuff. They really thought that there was this group of Italians that were subversive and going to try and throw over the government. And crazy. But meanwhile, if you're an Irish gangster, a black gangster, or a Greek sanctuary, you're love and life because no one's looking at you. And so anyway, they made their name in the 60s, especially the 60s and 70s, where because they were focused mainly on extorting people, they weren't dealing drugs at that point. They were just extorting people. Well, that meant a lot of violence. If you couldn't go up to another drug dealer and say, pay me 200 bucks or 300 bucks a week, if there wasn't a payback, you know, why would I pay you? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you why you're going to pay me. And so they committed a ton of murders, but the murders were never solved. Everyone knew who did it. You know, in, the, in, in law enforcement parlance, you know, the, the homicides internally were cleared because they knew who did it. Yeah. They oh, yeah. were prosecuted because people were just petrified. And this is, of course, before we have a term for this. Now, of course, it's the stop sniffing campaign. Well, this was yeah. the 1960s Philly version of stop sniffing. Yeah. Well, yeah. There was, uh, I mean, it, any ethnic minority that lives is kind of ghettoized that all live together in the same geographic area. You got to work like heck to even get information out of them. Now, you usually get an informant, but to get a witness is almost yeah, impossible. Right. You know, I understand you got to go back there and live, don't yeah. you? Yeah, that's true. I just can't do this because my family, they'll burn my house down. It's just, you were just dead. Well, the other thing is, we all focus on the high profile things in the media or in Hollywood where somebody's in the witness protection program. And yeah. First of all, that only started in 1968, which was a new phenomenon. But even beyond that, Local jurisdictions don't have those resources. Right, so we didn't have that. You can't say to somebody, to your point, that, oh, well, we'll take care of you. They can't take yeah. care of you. They are literally going yeah. back to that neighborhood where everybody knows is running the neighborhood. And it's going to be very clear the one or two or three people who had to be responsible for this prosecution. So they just couldn't. In fact, in my book, Black Brothers Incorporated, there are, oh my gosh, there have to be at least five witnesses who were killed before trial. Because they got snuffed out by the back of the in advance. And look, for your listeners who don't know, the way that works in the street is you don't have to kill every witness. You kill a few and people get the message. You just <laughs> yes, kill one, they get the message. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. So did your guys have, did they have any liaison with the Italian? Oh, a lot. Crime yeah, family? They were, they were we, we did here. Yeah, they were close okay. friends, yeah. Essentially, the way Philadelphia worked back then, it's still true now, but especially true back then. For those people not familiar with Philadelphia, South Philadelphia, which everyone knows from the, if you ever watch Philadelphia sports or concerts, that's all in South Philadelphia. It's all in a specific okay. area. 
People have seen the Rocky movies. They know the Italian market, all the stuff. Well, Broad Street in Philadelphia is essentially 14th Street. So it goes 13th, Broad, 15th, and so on. East of Broad Street, meaning the numbers from 13th down to nothing, down to the Delaware River, which splits Philadelphia and New Jersey. That was all Italian territory. And west of Broad, 15th and up, was black mafia stuff. People want to think for some reason that these guys would clash. Organized crime is fluid. You never know who's going to stiff you over on a drug deal, on our numbers running operation, fill in the blank. So generally speaking, in the underworld, these guys are all somewhat friendly because you never know where you need money or a lawyer. And I always say to students, if I give you a million bucks tomorrow, hot money, what are you going to do with it? And of course, they have all sorts of crazy ideas. But no one really thinks, oh, yeah, well, that actually becomes a problem. You really do have to have a way to deal with that money. So they all, in Philly especially, they had a great relationship, which was the Bruno family when it started. Pardon me. Uh, yeah, yeah, Angela Bruno. And then it wound up being the Starfo family when Bruno was told me. But they got along great. With one exception, there was a case in the summer of 1973. This is a funny story, actually, where a bunch of Italian numbers runners were being extorted by Philadelphia's Black Mafia. Well, the people who get extorted... Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Complain to the Italian mobsters. And they tell the Bruno family guys, hey... This is not right. We're paying you, and now we're paying the Black Mafia guys. We can't afford this. Well, instead of a turf war, what winds up happening, the Italian mobsters go to Philadelphia Police Department's organized crime unit and complain about the Black Mafia coming in on their territory. <laughs> I actually have a blog post on the website about this. There's a great Philadelphia magazine expose in the summer of 73, where they say, you know, mob war, and it's a super fly black mafia gangster model with his back against a, an Italian black mafia gangster. And the plan, the worry was there was going to be his mob war because of this turf battle and stuff. And it turns out nothing happened, and the Bruno family acceded to the black mafia in that one limited regard. But for the most part, they got along great. And the thing is, they had a handful of intermediaries. One I talked about is a guy named Major Coxon. He was not a member of the Black Mafia. Some of your viewers may know he ran for mayor of Camden, New Jersey in 1973. Mm. In fact, if you ever see the movie American Hustle, which was a very, very popular movie, which is about the Abstian situation in New Jersey. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah, I saw well, that. When Major Coxon ran for mayor of Camden, New Jersey, the reporters said, wait a second, you're a career felon. You served time in federal prison. Don't you have some nerve running for mayor of Camden, New Jersey? Major Coxon's quote was, hey, in New Jersey, typically people run for office, get elected, and then you get convicted. I'm reversing the trend. And and it was funny. He was prophetic because he lost to Angelo Arachetti, who wound up getting prosecuted and convicted of the which is where that movie came from. (laughs) That's a good one. Anyway, so Major Coxon was the intermediary between Philadelphia's Black Mafia and the Italian mobsters. And they got along great for years. There was never a yeah. And by the way, that's this is related to an earlier question you asked me. Part of the challenge, if you're a black Philadelphian in the 60s and 70s, and you've got these black gangsters who are preying on your neighborhoods, your businesses, you can't understand why law enforcement isn't doing anything about this. 
And then somebody like Major Coxon is doing political rallies with Muhammad Ali in New Jersey and running for mayor. And he's hanging out at City Hall in Philly and he's on TV all the time. They know that he's tight with all the black mafia leaders. They kept assuming that somebody had to be getting paid off because this didn't make sense. And it just never occurred to them that law enforcement just didn't know, didn't care. And the black community got screwed. Yeah. Uh, pretty much the same thing here. And we had one guy that was like the kind of liaison. He wasn't so much of a politician, but he was a guy that knew everybody. And he wasn't even a full Italian, but he knew everybody. And he would go between the two. And if they wanted a liaison about something, wanted to get something done, why, he was a guy that would be in the middle yeah. of that. So. Well, Major Coxon was smart, too. He owned a bunch of nightclubs. And you'd see the who's who of Philly people who were in town, out of town, I'm talking whites and blacks, like major celebrities, sports mm-hmm. stars. That, wow. that was just know you at the time. That's by like the uh, April 4th, 1972 murder at the Club Harlem in New Jersey where Fat Tai Palmer was killed. There were major acts that played there. Sinatra, Dean Martin, but that was, they, these were not quote unquote black establishments. It was a different time back then. Yeah. Well, put it this way, at least in Philly and South Jersey it was. I don't know about the rest of the country. That's why it was very complicated and confusing to the media and to law enforcement. Now, they must have moved into drugs. That's what happened here. When heroin came, got so popular in the 70s, they moved in on heroin. It was called, they called themselves the uh, Purple Capsule Gang. And they actually were responsible for killing a black politician who the Italians wanted out of the way. And they had this guy who had gone to them and set all that up. But they went on into heroin. And then as those guys got taken off, that's when law enforcement really got onto them. When they went into heroin big time, the time it was called drug abuse law enforcement before the DEA and Federal Bureau of Narcotics and kind of the end of that, they had two or three different names in there before they became the DEA. So they moved in on that and started taking those guys off. But boy, after that, when cocaine came in and crack, it just, they all went into that and it really diversified, shall we say. There was no single organization after that. But in Philly, it was weird. They didn't get involved in the drugs until like the mid 70s. The only reason they wound up on law enforcement's radar is because even though they were Philadelphia's Black Mafia, they were all along the East Coast. So Sam Christian was the founder of Philadelphia's Black Mafia. The only case in which he was ever successfully prosecuted was him shooting a New York City police officer, robbery in New York City. The Club Harlem shooting in Atlantic City was, of course, an interstate issue where Philadelphians were whatever. And that, that got the attention of the feds. The main case, the guy, Major Cox and the mayoral candidate I just mentioned, he got murdered in June of 73. Again, it's Philadelphia guys going over to, to New Jersey. So it was interstate, so the feds got involved in that. But especially the January 1973 murder of the Hanafi Muslims, Sunni Muslims in D.C., where eight black mafia guys traveled down from Philadelphia to murder Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's mentor, Hamas Abdul-Khalis. I remember that. What was the story behind that? I can't remember. I remember that was a big deal. It was a national story. Now, by the way, this was not, you can go back and look at all the newspaper articles. This was never reported as a Philadelphia black mafia murder, but that's exactly what it was. For your listeners, if who don't know, the leadership of Philadelphia's black mafia were all members of the Nation of Islam, Temple 12. And the nation at the time was at war with a person who used to be a member of the nation. His name was originally Ernest McGee. When he went with the nation, he became Ernest X. When he left the nation, because he was convinced they were more a racial separatist organization than a political movement, and a political movement rather than real religion, he founded what he called Hanafi Islam, a version of Sunni Islam. 
Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was his first convert. So the nation had Muhammad Ali, and now the Sunnis and the Hanafis had Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Well, the guy's name was Hamas Abdul-Khalis. He sends a letter out to all 56 Nation of Islam mosques, and it says all sorts of terrible things about Elijah Muhammad, the leader of the Nation of Islam. He calls him a false prophet. He says all sorts of things. Within days, a hit squad is organized in Temple 12 in Philly of all the Black Mafia guys, and they go down to kill Hamas Abdul-Khalis. Hamas, ironically, is not home, so they decide to kill most of his family. They actually thought they killed all of them. But the people they shot, several of the people they shot, the bullets were old. So the lead was soft and it actually hit their skulls and flattened. So they left thinking they had eviscerated the family and they didn't. But they drowned four kids, including a nine-day-old baby. They slaughtered the whole family. There's a great line in the book where John Clark was the leader of that hit squad. And one of his Black Mafia compatriots said, wait a second, why are you telling us to kill the kids? They had nothing to do with this and they can't be witnesses. So what is the benefit of killing the kids? And John Clark said, the seed of the hypocrite is in them, meaning they're the wrong Muslim sect. And so they killed the family. And by the way, there's a footnote to that. If your followers want to do this, in 1977, a Masadu police was frustrated. For those who don't know, the death penalty was not constitutional at this point. So not only four of the eight black mafia guys get prosecuted, and even of those four, none of them get the death penalty. A Masadu police gets frustrated, and as a response... He takes people hostage at three buildings in D.C. in 1977, and he winds up getting prosecuted, convicted. And ironically, he dies in federal prison. And the black mafia guys who killed his family, several of them never even served a day in prison. Wow. He was just That's a heck of a story. So anyways, to answer your question, they didn't get on the radar because of drugs. They got on the radar because of their outrageous acts of violence all around the East East Coast. They did get in, to your point, though, they did get in drugs. They made a big mistake. And for the would-be drug dealers out there, this is the problem. If you extort drug dealers, you at least get to say, oh, I'm the badass. Don't prosecute against me. You know, and you have to have witnesses. Well, if you're the drug dealer, you're either on the wiretaps or you're not. You either have yep, the drugs yep. on you're going <laughs> to... So yep. they got greedy like most people. And they start, instead of just taking a street tax, they took over the trade. And they wound up becoming a huge RICO case in 1974. And that's what took off the first level of Black Mafia guys. Interesting. Well, Sean, this has been great. Tell us a little bit more about your book, Philadelphia's Black Mafia, Social and Political History. Now, it sounds like, and oh, you have another one that's a little more mainstream called Black Brothers Incorporated, The Violent Rise and Fall of Philadelphia's Black Mafia. So probably the Black Brothers would be the one that your regular citizens, shall we say, would want to read, it sounds like. Yeah, Philadelphia's Black Mafia is a textbook. It's designed for classes of organized crime. It's answering basic questions. Is there such a thing as black organized crime? How is it distinguished from Italians? All those sorts of things. Black Brothers is the one that you would see on your regular bookstore shelf. That So if I'm talking about the murder of Major Coxon in a textbook, you don't need to know what the room looked like. But you'll get that Black Brothers (laughs) Incorporated. I got you. I'll tell you what. I got some listeners out there that are really into this and like to study it almost from an academic standpoint. Uh, they're not just being entertained by it, but I got a whole lot of people who want to be entertained. Myself, I want to be entertained anymore. <laughs> so I have read some of those academic books and they are interesting, but I like to be entertained too. So you've done some uh, TV stuff or you had a uh, History Channel and A&E Network. You've done some stuff on yeah. that. Yeah, it was interesting. Back in 2007, the BET had a TV show called American Gangster. 
and they would do specific episodes on specific organized crime groups. And then they, yeah. uh, the first episode of season two was on Philadelphia's Black Mafia. And I felt bad for that producer. He was a great guy named Henry Shipper. How do you take 40 years of history and put it into 40 minutes, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah, <awesome>. really. <laughs> but they did a great job. And uh, now, so it was originally shot for BET, but BET sold the rights to A&E, Discovery, and all that. So it's yeah. routinely on rotation. And uh, it's, it's online also. I've done interviews... As you may know, we say that it's on A&E or Discovery, but none of those companies actually produce content. There are two or three production yeah. companies that do all of this. And so they'll sit me down for seven hours, eight hours, and interview me for a day in a suite somewhere. And then it appears in any number of different shows. So <laughs> yeah. my, it's actually funny. A relative of mine sent me a screenshot. He was watching TV a couple months ago. And he said, I didn't know you were in this. And I said, I didn't know I was in that. It was a, it was a, it was a National Geographic <laughs> show in organized crime. I don't know. I don't know where they put this. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I got involved with a company that was trying to do something on the skim for National Geographic. They flew me back to Washington and or to Bethesda, Maryland, and they did a long interview with me. And then I got hold of them, this is like over a year ago, and I got hold of them recently, and they said, well, we ended up going another way. <laughs> so, <laughs> so much for my claim yeah, to fame. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, be careful. It's, it's on tape somewhere. You never know. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. It is. I bet there's a lot more stories in that Black Brothers that you guys need to get out there and get that book. I think it would be pretty entertaining and interesting and a different, a look at a little different not the old lucky Luciano. We all know way too much about New York organized crime, I think, and a lot of people agree with me. Well, one, thing, one, thing there, one thing that's interesting is Philadelphia's Black Mafia, yeah, they're not what they used to be. No organized crime is what they used to be because the feds have figured out how to prosecute. Right. <laughs> oh, yeah. But straight through a few years ago, the Black Mafia guys have been in the news, they and their offspring. The largest wow. cocaine seizure in Philadelphia history two or three years ago, Black Mafia still out there. You know, they get out of prison and of course they're not, you know, they don't become bankers. They go right back on the street. So yeah. um, it's not a dated story whatsoever. When, right before I, I moved to Charleston a few years ago, before I did, I was still lecturing the DA's office up there and the FBI because even though these new FBI agents or new DA's thought it was a dated story, it's not. Because if you look at those intel files, it's a roadmap into what the street looks like today. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I would kind of see the same thing or I see the same thing. I see some of those same names I remember. Back in the day, kids and grandkids are getting arrested for something. And yeah. so, and especially in the Italian mafia, but even in the African-American community too, you see that same thing here. So you got another book and I want you to come back and talk about this one, Gaming the Game, the story behind the NBA betting scandal and the gambler who made it happen. Is that the betting scandal that Henry Hill was involved in? No. It's a different yeah, one. Okay. This, this one's about the uh, 2003, 2007 NBA betting scandal involving referee Tim oh. Donahue. Oh, yeah. Tim Donahue. Yeah. You know, actually, I tried to get hold of him. He acted, he emailed back and he was going to do it. Then something happened. I don't remember what, but well, maybe he heard uh, you were talking to me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're not his favorite person. Huh? <laughs> he seemed like he was a little bit thin skinned from what I could find out about him and a little bit hard to deal with. Uh, so, well, <laughs> if you're lucky enough to get access to him, I'll give you a handful of questions to ask him. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> interesting. Interesting. All right. That's, just, you know, Gary, that's part of the problem. We, we, I said at the very beginning of this interview that in our business with organized crime, there's so much mythology parading us. Yeah. There's a great example where that guy has been interviewed, I don't know, got to be it, 500 times. I mean, crazy. You know, his book came out in 2009. It's just unreal. People just give it a microphone. Well, it's all fake. 
2011. I know he's going through clicks and ratings, but my goodness, he needs somebody like you to, um, you know, actually ask questions and follow-ups. Anyway, I could talk for hours about that. Maybe I will, yeah. but, uh, <laughs> well, we will. We will next time. We'll do this again, Sean. Yeah. I appreciate it. And appreciate you being on the show. Is there anything else that folks need to know about? They can go to a little more about your work. Yeah, I thank you for asking. My website is Sean Patrick Griffin, Sean, S-E-A-N, Patrick, P-A-T-R-I-C-K, Griffin, G-R-I-F-F-I-N, dot net. And the reason I say that, it's not because you have to buy my books, especially with the NBA betting scandal. I was so frustrated with all the misinformation with that. All of the data, all the files, all the betting, anything I could put online to resolve this forever is on my website. So that people can do their own research and come to their own conclusions. And anytime something that pops up related to my research, I blog about it and it's all sourced. My website is sourced no different than my books. So that would be good. Sean Patrick. Interesting. Yeah. I got a bunch of guys out there that'll be doing that. I promise you that because they're really into it and they are into more than just the myths. Matter of fact, they start hearing some of these myths and they want to start calling me on it. And you really see it on Facebook where uh, we perpetuate some myths. And, and sometimes I always say, don't let the facts get in the way of a good story. So, uh, But I'll never say something as a fact when I don't really know for sure. I'll try to differentiate, but we don't like to get the facts get in the way of a good story. <laughs> and you, Sometimes you just got to take it on its face, you know, and that's why I've never written an academic book for sure. Not because it's really hard. I know to footnote everything, but I don't want anybody footnoting to my work. <laughs> it's just, it's, I don't want to prevent, you know, if you say something orally, it's one thing, but when you write it down in a book, then somebody is going to take that and copy it and put it somewhere else yeah. and somewhere else. Yeah, right, so right, it's, right. Uh, and there's a lot of myth out there. And, and uh, these guys that follow the mob, they know who they are. I mean, I'm trying to, oh, Henry Hill, I mentioned his right. name. You talk about myths, that guy, <laughs> that guy, yeah. he put some stuff out there. And there's been uh, Frank Culotta who just made rest in peace. And he was a good guy. But boy, he <laughs> he told a lot of stories too that, you know, he didn't let the facts get in the way of a good story either. Now, he lived the life and he did a lot of it, but he's like a lot of us. He, you got to tie everything together in a neat package. Otherwise, people get bored. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's true, that's true. You know what I mean? All right, Sean. John Patrick Griffin, you guys, you need to get out and get on his website, first of all, and especially about this betting scandal. And we're going to have you come back on here in the next couple of months, and we'll talk about that story. Would that be okay? All right. Thanks a lot, Sean. Thanks, Gary. Well, folks, that ends another Gangland Wire episode. Just want to thank you all for listening and for all your nice Apple podcasts and other podcast app reviews and the nice comments you make on my YouTube page and on my Facebook, and questions you ask on my Facebook pages. Now, as most of you all know, I upload my Zoom interviews on YouTube so you can see what my guests look like in real life. And also put most of those on my Gangland Wire podcast Facebook group. And, and in regards to those Facebook groups, I've got two. One is the Facebook page, Gangland Wire Facebook page, and the other was my podcast group. And the group is smaller, and I monitor that pretty closely. So get on that. I want to thank Ken Couture and several others for keeping fresh content on my Facebook page. If you want more mob information you can shake a stick at, just go to the Gangland Wire Podcast Facebook group. And remember, if you support the podcast with donations, you'll get an invite to my monthly live Zoom calls where we'll share stories, answer questions, and sometimes have guest speakers. And in general, we have a good time. A lot of guys will 
be sitting back in their den with a cigar and, and a drink. And uh, we just have a really good time on those monthly Zoom calls. The main method of making a donation is on my website donate page. You can use a credit card or use PayPal. But you can also buy me a cup of coffee or shot the beer with your Venmo app or make any donation that you want to make. If you do it on Venmo, make sure you get me an email if you want to be on my Zoom call. I ask for donations to help do my next documentary. And a lot of you guys really responded big time. And I've been able to pay people. It's going to have a little higher production values than what I've had before. I'm getting really close to completing it. It's about Kansas City organized crime and politics. I have a title, finally. It's Vote Fraud Here Again, Politics and the Mob. And don't forget about my previous documentaries, Gangland Wire, Skimming from Las Vegas, and Brothers Against Brothers, The Savella Spiro War. Both of those can be purchased or rented on Amazon. Now, finally, the last thing I'm selling, and I'll leave y'all alone, is my book, Leaving Vegas, the true story of how FBI wiretaps ended mob domination of Las Vegas casinos. Now, that title is a mouthful. Now, if you're going to get that book, you're going to find that I used a lot of the actual wiretap transcripts from the skimming investigation. And if you get the Kindle version, I got the audios from those wiretaps. And you just click on a link and you'll go to that other website and it will allow you to listen to all those wiretaps. I think that's kind of unusual. So go to Amazon and get that book and get it in the Kindle version. And if you don't have a Kindle, Amazon has free Kindle software for your tablet or your phone. Now I'm going to let you guys go. But first, I want to say that Gangland Wire supports the Veterans Administration, their programs that help veterans out with PTSD. You can get help with their hotline, 800-873-8255, and then push one. Or you can go to their website, www.ptsd.va.gov. Thanks a lot for listening. And I must credit all of our music to our good friend and Frank Costello expert, Casey McBride from Portland, Oregon. Check out Casey's Frank Costello Facebook page, Uncle Frank's Place. Thanks, Casey. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.